Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. When Andrea Gardner first saw an image of pioneering female rock climber Louise Shepherd hanging off the side of a sheer rock face, it was like a punch in the chest. It was the realisation for Andrea that if one woman could climb some of the most challenging rock faces in the world, there was no reason that she couldn't do the same. So began a life of adventure, including skiing in world championships and climbing most of the cliffs depicted on the Apple screensaver. Along the way, Andrea has herself become a role model, blazing the trail as one of the very few professional women venture capital investors, as the founder, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Gillix Ventures. Andrea is convinced that disruptive, scalable technology businesses are critical for the future economic prosperity of Australia and is passionate about backing daring technology founders to make the world better. Her experience as a corporate lawyer, investment banker and a natural entrepreneur enable Andrea to meticulously select, execute and manage investments, all with an eye to mitigating risk. Because you learn some good habits as a rock climber when your life depends on excellent preparation. Andrea, it's so fantastic to meet you. I've been wanting to talk to you for ages because you have such a wonderful reputation um, in the startup sector and you're such a groundbreaker. It strikes me you're the sort of person that's um, got an amazing energy but also amazing vision. What was it like being that sort of person growing up in a small country town? Oh, wow, that's quite the question. (laughs) You know, it's funny, I love the country, I love my horses, I love my dogs, I like collecting the frogs' eggs and watching them grow into frogs. But I did feel like I was in a little fishbowl and I was most, I think for a long time, I just, I read voraciously. So I knew there was this huge world out there that I was just desperate, desperate to discover. And I have to say, I was pretty, I think I was on a mission to make sure that I escaped the confines of a little tiny country town. And, yeah, I was the first in the whole history of my family to go to university. I didn't even know the names of the university in my state when I was doing HSC. All I knew was that it was my way out. That is such a question. No one's ever asked me that before. Anyway, go on. (laughs) Well, it just seems so interesting because... It sort of feels like that's the the sort of model for the rest of your life, that you're the sort of feel comfortable being the first person to do something. So going back to that sort of decision about going to university, I presume you went to school in the town that you grew up in? Oh, yes. <laughs> I got kicked out as well. Oh, really? You got expelled? Yeah. Well, I don't think I was formally expelled. I was just asked not to come back. What for? What did you do? Well, it was a very conservative Catholic school and 
I was an inquisitive person and I asked questions a lot and I didn't do anything bad. I did question things because I have a vivid memory of when I was 15 and we were all huddled in this dusty old church hall in the corner for our sex education lessons. And what that basically meant was the nuns told us that if a boy tried to kiss you, they really wanted to rape you. Literally, that's what they said, no exaggeration. And I was very offended because I had been kissed before and kissed a boy and the boy was lovely and I had no doubt. I thought it was the most awful thing to suggest about him. (laughs) And I remember remember saying, isn't it possible the boy boy might want to kiss you because he likes you? And uh, no, that wasn't acceptable. So I was quite outspoken with things like that and at this Catholic school that wasn't that uh, well received. And so then how did you decide what course to study at university? I just wanted to escape. And I also loved English literature. I really, really, really loved good writing and I, that's what I wanted to do. And But you studied social work, so that sort of feels like... <laughs> well, yep. So I started English and then I loved... John Donne's poetry and a lecturer was yawning while he was reciting The Sun's Rising, which I just thought was the biggest sacrilege and I realised I wasn't going to learn about literature from someone that yawned during The Sun's Rising and then transferred into behavioural science and did psychology. And I really enjoyed that. I never thought of myself as a science type person, but the scientific methodology really appealed to my sense of reasonableness I suppose and good sense and I'm really glad I did that I really really loved my um, psychology degree I really enjoyed it and I can imagine it comes in use all the time regardless of the facet of your life that that understanding human behavior helps you be successful in lots of different ways I think so and look it was less the psychology degree because that was a very science methodology degree but the social work where you learn basic counselling skills to listen to people and be and elevate your own awareness about the impact your behaviour is having on other people. Yeah, I think that sort of sensitivity, I think that actually has been really helpful when I'm getting to know founders that I'm investing in. And so I'm fascinated, you came to Melbourne for uni and then you went back to the country to work for a while and then you went off to the UK. How did you make those decisions, big city, small town, bigger centre of the world? Oh, that's an interesting one. So I married very young, as a lot of country girls do. Uh, I was 21 and I was the last one in my school year to get married. I married the school captain of the Catholic school, who was the Ruckman and Melbourne football club for years. And he wanted to go back, so I went back to the country town with him and started climbing, uh, rock climbing, and kind of realised that, oh, my God, All those years I wanted to escape this country town, I still haven't seen that world that I wanted to see. And, like, he didn't see any reason to ever set foot outside of Australia. He's a lovely, lovely man, but ultimately I thought I only have one life and I've got to live the way I want to live it. And I got very, very uh, ambitious with my climbing. So I wanted to be the best woman climber in the world and the only way to do that is to actually, you know, take my climbing rack and my tent and go and uh, camp out and I wanted to climb um, El Capitan at Yosemite. I had a big poster of that on my office wall for a long time and and I just thought, well, you know, there's only one person going to make my dreams come true and that's me. So off I went. That was a bit scary. <laughs> I mean, the rock climbing is so interesting in terms of 
fear and risk management and exhilaration. How did that sort of mix manifest itself with you? Because I was a very sort of protected kind of Catholic country girl. I always wanted to go camping when I was a little girl, but, you know, girls don't go camping. Rock climbing really kind of liberated me, I think. It made me realise that I could be as self-determined as I wanted to be and that if I was on the sharp end of the rope and I was always on the sharp end of the rope, I was always, you know, I lead climbed all the time and a lot of women that did climb around that time would hold a you know, they'd be the belay, used to call them belay girls. <laughs> they would hold the rope for their boyfriend or whatever. But there were other women like there was a particular woman called Louise Shepherd who taught me to climb who had probably the most the biggest impact on my life of anyone I've ever met really and that was because she was literally the most self-determined woman I've ever known. She was great fun and super intelligent and all that sort of stuff too but she was an amazing climber and she led really, really hard climbs, much harder than most men could lead and she taught me that if I was going to climb I had to lead. So the very she taught my first lesson climbing on the very first day, I think it was the second day she had me leading something. No one ever would do that, especially outdoors now. And she never did it again because it frightened the shit out of the two girlfriends that I took with me who never would climb again. But it just got to me because I I remember looking up at this four-pitch climb that I'd done and going, oh, my God, I did that. And my heart was in my chest. I felt really proud of myself because it was really hard. And she just looked down at me and she just pissed herself laughing because I had sort of cuts and scrapes on my knees and my elbows and stuff, which to me were proud war wounds. And she's like indication of really bad technique. (laughs) I'd cover those up. (laughs) I've heard you relay a story about a climbing experience that's really shaped how you've thought about risk management and about wanting to impress other people. Can you share that story? Yeah, look, there was this climb and it was really hard climb and there was probably at the time there was only maybe two women in Australia and maybe a handful of women in the world would have been up to leading it and I climbed this thing and, oh, God, I was so proud. of. I couldn't, oh, I was so proud of myself. And Kim Carrigan, who at the time was probably the top, you know, couple of climbers in the world, was belaying me. And I was so excited. I just, you know, I was going to really impress him and I really wanted to impress him. And instead he got to the top. He was livid. He was really angry with me, really angry. I was really humiliated because I'd put in a piece of protection that was solid but I'd ignored a piece nearby that was absolutely bomb-proof. And he kind of gave me this lecture and said, I know you really want to be a top climber, but there's no excuse for not mitigating risk to the max. Look, I was deeply humiliated and that lesson was deeply embedded in my DNA, I think. So investing in a very early-stage tech startups, it's a high-risk investment class. As Alon, our investment manager, says, we kind of do more series a level dd even for these really small very early stage checks but that's that's because of my appetite for risk isn't actually that high and i suppose i've always felt this real acute like acute responsibility for um my investors money you know they're following my decision making and i feel really you know it's a it's a big responsibility rather overdo the dd than underdo it wanting to be the best didn't just contain itself to rock climbing it feels like it transferred itself to telemark skiing how did you make that transition 
yeah, as I said, I spent seven and a half months living in my tent at Yosemite bagging all those big walls. And then we went over to Europe and climbed the Matterhorn and did a few things in Switzerland and then came back. And this girl said, what are you doing at the end of the season? And I said, oh, well, I'll go back to Australia and get a job like a normal person. And she said, oh, well, why don't you come to Aspen and stay with my family and ski? And I said, oh, I don't really know how to ski. And she said, oh, it's ego snow. You can learn to ski. What does ego snow mean? It's really easy skiing. <laughs> and it's true. It is. It's the best place in the world to learn because it is really easy. You've got this dry, fluffy powder. If you fall over, instead of falling on ice and it hurts like shit, you just fall in this soft stuff and it just makes you giggle. But there's some great frozen waterfalls nearby. So I would throw a, a rope up on a frozen waterfall and take some of these awesome Swedish ski bums ice climbing. And then they were kind of my undyingly devoted ski teachers because they were desperate for me to take them ice climbing again on a frozen waterfall. So that's how I got into skiing from there. And then the next winter, skiing was pretty good fun and it didn't have the fear factor in the same way that climbing had. So the next season went to Chamonix for the winter. It was the beginning of Ski Extreme. You know, your ice axe and ice hammer out and your crampons and climb up an ice wall or something and then ski down some steep couloir on the other side or whatever. Yeah, I really love doing that. Some of the people I was doing that with were Swedish and Norwegian telemark skiers. So I started telemarking because they, they're really light skis. Can you explain the difference between telemark and alpine skiing? Yeah, so telemark skiing, your heel is free, so you kind of genuflect to turn. It's the traditional, the way uh, skiing originated in Norway. I mean, you got really, really good at it. You represented Australia. You feels like it, at a point in your life was pretty consuming for you. Oh, yeah, that's all I did was it was ski and the ski mountaineering I really, really loved. So I skied and then I actually came back to Australia. That was quite funny. Came back to Australia and my Swedish boyfriend that I did all this telemarking with, he was a bit of a, they flew him around to races in a helicopter and stuff. He was a good skier. And I remember asking, I knew there was a spare seat in a helicopter going to this race at Mount Hotham and could I hitch a ride? And they, they just turned around, looked at me and scoffed at me like, who are you, scum? No, we're going to go without you and have this spare seat without you. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll put me back in my place. But what was really lovely was uh, his parents were over from Sweden, drove around there. And I got talking to the race organiser and she convinced me to use her skis and her equipment and enter the race. And I'm like, I've never done anything like this before, but I won. And (laughs) because technically I was reasonably okay by then, he won and I won. So I felt quite good after that, (laughs) after they wouldn't let me go in the helicopter with him. I mean, that sort of entrepreneurial flair seemed to go hand in hand with that desire for high performance. So thinking about creative ways to fund your skiing, did that just come naturally or, you know, did you have people suggest stuff to you? With the rock climbing, I saved up before I went to Yosemite and then I was going to run out and run out of money. There was a piece of climbing equipment developed by Metolius that were these sort of flexible stem friends, these sort of cams that you pulled in on a trigger to put in a crack they hadn't been flexible they're very standard on a climbing rack now but back then there weren't any flexible stem friends and there certainly weren't any tiny micro friends and these guys up in Oregon in a garage were making some so I hitched right up there and maxed my credit card out filled it up with all these things went back to Yosemite 
And Yosemite was full of was full of all these people, these guys from Europe that had done their big trip over there to try and realize their dream of climbing El Capitan. And I would just whip out these things and say, oh, I couldn't possibly have done it if it wasn't for this. <laughs> and so I sold out those in oh, like seriously a few days. That kept me going for about another year. And then uh, with the skiing, I just painted all this fabric and made these headbands. My mums did all the sewing. I did all the painting. And we made these really bright fluorescent coloured headbands. And myself and, you know, all the hotshot guys that I, because we were doing aerials then. So, and there was this great event in Aspen that was this, you know, it was a mogul competition, a dual mogul competition ended in a really big, quite a big spectacular jump. Uh, just in front of everybody having lunch that was you know attract skiers to that mountain I suppose and so everyone that competed in that competition I would gave all these these headbands to and all the really good skiers all these Swedish ski bums that have been you know I'd been taking ice climbing and they've been teaching me skiing so I gave so I, I kind of made it trendy you know the hotshot skiers are wearing made it trendy and I would just take armfuls of these things and as I went to different resorts and sell them and yeah it was fun. <laughs> and that that kept me going for about three years, I think. Wow. So that's influencer marketing, you know, way back. <laughs> it was very early on. Like I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but it was hard to get a job if you were racing somewhere else in another ski resort next the following week or something. So, And I'm fascinated with the, you know, you just mentioned your mum there. I can imagine the people you grew up with must have thought you were from another planet somehow. Like your life must have been so different from the life they were living for many of them that had sort of settled down in the same town they'd grown up in. I have to say I'm very grateful to my parents because, you know, we made this film on rock climbing called Free Climbing and in the middle of filming it I had a a, a nasty accident. I fell about 30 metres upside down the rope schoolgirl era had the rope between my legs it flipped me upside down and I before my belayer actually caught me I sort of smacked my head and shoulder on it and yeah I think a few bones were broken but anyway I was kind of looked like the walking wounded when I finally got out of hospital and came home and I my head was swathed in bandages my shoulder my hands my leg you know all this stuff and you know my parents I know that they were terrified about this climbing business and then when they saw the film I think they were even more terrified. But not once did they give me a hard time about it or ask me not to do it or, you know, they were very respectful so I'm very grateful to them for that. And were they entrepreneurial people? No, I think my dad was probably a frustrated entrepreneur. Like (laughs) he worked at SPC Fruit Cannery and I remember him and his mate, they, you know, they could buy cans of fruit for a fraction of a price as staff members and they'd load it up into their trailer and take it down to the markets in Melbourne and sell it for three times the price. And I think he was probably a, a frustrated entrepreneur. <laughs> the life you're describing just sounds fabulous, like the sort of life <laughs> many people in their sort of 20s would just die for. How did the, you then end up settling down in the UK and doing a law degree and getting, you know, what looks like a much more conventional life established so I'd been skiing oh quite a long time by then I think it ended up being about nine seasons or something and basically I was in Chamonix and there were these two twins I was 29 and these twins were these Swedish twins were 19 so I was 10 years older than them and I skied with them a lot they were really good skiers 
and um, really good mogul skiers. And the Winter Olympics were coming up and I knew that I just didn't have a hope of catching up on them. And I was 10 years older than them. But, you know, they'd been skiing since they were little and I'd been skiing since I was about 26 or something, 25, 26 or something. And I was tired of just being really poor as well <laughs> and sleeping on people's uh, sofas and in my tent and stuff. And I thought if I did the Olympics that I'd probably come last. And I think I could have done with someone then just to reassure me and say, just go for it, just try, you know. But in the end, I got this scholarship. Uh, and also the sponsorship was not really forthcoming, so it made it hard. And then I got this scholarship to study law in London, and it was a very generous scholarship. It was like a salary and all my university fees paid and all that sort of stuff. And I was three months in, and literally I got a letter in the mail offering me this amazing sponsorship. That was a bit hard. I was like, well, I've already committed to this, so I'll do this. And how did you enjoy working as a lawyer and then ultimately working as an investment banker? Oh, working as a lawyer was just really hard for me. I think it's just bored the shit out of me. The scholarship was for a commercial law firm. If it had been something like human rights or something, I don't think it would have bored me. I think I would have been into that. But the commercial law was just you're documenting someone else's transaction, someone else's deal. You're just a glorified clerk, really. That's what it felt like to me. To be, you know, you weren't leading anything, you weren't creating anything. So I, I did find it a bit boring. And then I was, I really quite enjoyed it when I was at Lehman Brothers. I worked on the fixed income syndicate desk, and you know, we just did these sort of big syndicated global bond programs and established new bond programs. And you know, and I advise, you know, my clients were the treasuries of different governments around the world and some of the retail banks in Scandinavia and um, and England. And that was much more fun because there was structuring involved and it was a bit more interesting. And I could get instruct the lawyers to do the boring stuff. And were you there when Lehman collapsed? No, no. I'd already moved to Scotland to be with Ian by then. And so then I've heard you say that where you are now is sort of the sweet spot of your working life. Does it sort of feel like all those experiences of, because understanding legal structures is actually really important for startups and understanding capital markets and all of those sort of experiences, do you sort of feel like they were all an amazing sort of apprenticeship to get to where you are now? Uh, Yeah, look, I do think it's been helpful, but it has been, you know, right from the beginning, it has been a real apprenticeship. The learning curve has been so steep. And I think there's a couple of reasons why I really do feel like I've hit my sweet spot. I don't think I will never have another job. Maybe I'll later in 15 years' time or something, maybe I'll, you know, do things like help on something to do with climate change or, promote, you know, supporting women founders or something like that. But I won't have another job, if you know what I mean, because I love this. And the reason I've hit my sweet spot is for several reasons. One, it's feels intrinsically valuable what we're doing backing these amazing founders to make the world a bit better and to contribute to building our economy here you know the the digging stuff out of the ground is so so finite and short-termist um you know it feels really really important early stage startups are one of the greatest creators of jobs and in australia so i think it's important and worthwhile it's even more important and worthwhile if you're backing something like a climate startup that's combating climate change. You know, being an investment banker, it didn't feel intrinsically valuable. 
And the other one is, uh, you know, I get bored very, very easily, which is why the law was not good for me. Uh, you know, while my learning curve is really steep, I'm excited and I'm loving it and I'm really enjoying it. But once my learning curve flattens out, I get really bored. <laughs> and it never flattens out because you're always meeting a new extraordinary founder that's trying to make a difference in the world in, a, in an industrial sector that I, I am not familiar with. And I have to get up the learning curve on that. And that I find really stimulating. You mentioned at the beginning that you were just desperate to get away from the smallness of Australia and then you had this amazing experience overseas. What made you decide to come back and live here in Australia? And, you know, your comment just then about the importance of, you know, your personal contribution to helping Australia flourish. How did that all work for you? Look, it was never... The smallness of Australia itself I wanted to get away from. It was a tiny little country town. I mean, the country town I was brought up in, the population was 1,200. So was that near Shepparton somewhere? What town did you grow up in? Yeah, it was Marupna. So it was really a small country town and people's ambitions were to work in a clothes shop or work in a bank or, you know, have an apprenticeship or something. And it just didn't excite me. I knew the world was more exciting. But I always wanted to come back to and I always planned to come back to Australia. My family were here. It was my culture. It's a wonderful quality of life here. I wanted to raise my children here. Actually, that was probably the big thing because I remember when, you know, I was deciding to move uh, from London to Scotland to be with Ian and I said, you've got five years, pal, and then I'm moving back to Australia because I'd spent quite a few years of kind of Friday night and you'd Plan to come down in Melbourne, in um, sorry, in London, and it pierced this depressing shroud of dark grey, and it'd always be drizzling. And I used to just think, oh, I just want to go home to where the sun shines, literally, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm, I sort of miss my family and my friends, and you know, I've sort of kept friends. You know, I was away for, lived overseas for well over twenty years, and those early friends that I had in Australia are still, you know, really, really important to me. So it was good to come back. They're in Melbourne, but I can still see them occasionally, so that's good. The principal reason was um, I didn't want to raise my children in a country where, um, you know, you open your mouth and you put in a box of assumptions because of your accent, whereas in Australia it just does seem a little more uh, forgiving in that way, I suppose. I'm not saying that Australia is not a stratified society, but it's not in the same way. So tell us about the genesis of Gillix. How did it sort of come to be? When we first came to Australia in 2002, we came to Sydney. I was a bit shocked when Ian said Sydney because all my family and friends were in Melbourne, but I was like, oh, well, if he's going to move from Scotland to Sydney, I'm not going to complain. Um, and I was a full-time mum and I didn't think I was ever going to really cut out to be a full-time mum. And so just for some stimulation, I used to go along to his, sorry, going backwards, he's an entrepreneur and he had a startup and there was almost nothing around in terms of opportunities for entrepreneurs to learn or network. So he started Innovation Bay to provide these educational and networking opportunities for people like him. And so he would interview some fabulously successful founder so that he could learn, but also invite other people along so that they could learn from those founders as well and provide networking opportunities. Then he went on, he needed to raise funds. So the next minute he's doing these sort of pitch events, uh, fundraising events, and I used to go along to those. And after a while, there was, I suppose, some pattern recognition, the features of those that did well and those that didn't. And then a company called Storage Use pitched, 
with a married couple founder, uh, Vanessa Wilson was the CEO, and they were the first to market with deduplication software for the cloud, clearly had enormous potential if the technology actually worked. Um, Ian had contacts in AWS, you know, big data story contacts. They said, oh, my God, it does work. We're like, okay. So we decided that we didn't have much in the way of money ourselves, but we got an allocation, had it oversubscribed that day. Two things happened. Three and a half years later, happily, we returned 10x to all those investors when that company was acquired by a NASDAQ-listed company called Pure Storage. But the other thing was it was really apparent that there was a big appetite for access to this investment class with its you know, high-risk, high-return profile. There was very little around in terms of expertise and experience in investing in them. So I started Geolix just to provide a way for investors to access the asset class in a way that manages risk a bit better, you know, the highly selected investment opportunities, big deal flow, lots of due diligence, terms that were structured to actually facilitate the growth of the startup. And yeah, and so since then, I think we've done 40 investments, 39 or 40 investments, and basically take a clip of the ticket, you know, charge a fee to for the co-investors to co-invest on the same terms, and then 20% of any profit they make. And that's a little bit less than most of the venture capital funds, but I didn't have a track record really to sell. So, you know, thought I'd set it low like that. So we've got a, a team of four now. We're recruiting another person, another full-time investor right now. But in August, we um, did the first close of our first fund. So that's exciting. And we're, we're running a hybrid model now so that we do investments out of the fund and then the fund investors have first dibs on the co-investment opportunities and then anyone that hasn't invested in the fund, uh, they can basically get the leftovers, I suppose. And it's just gone off like a rocket. It's really exciting. It's, you know, it's been six years of hard work, but it's just going really, really well. And I think the moment, it's been a while now that COVID's been hurting everyone and the economy. You know, it's hard to get good returns on investments at the moment. So I think there's perhaps an increased appetite for the the asset class because the potential for returns is is really huge. Um, you mentioned your first investment that you know pretty quickly returned 10x, which we're all dreaming of. But are there other investments or founders that you know you would use as illustrations of of the sort of companies you love to invest in and the sort of attributes that you're looking for? All of our portfolio companies. <laughs> um, no, we've got some great ones. Some of my favourites are one called Flood Map. It's still really early stage in Queensland. They're the first to market with real-time flood predictions. So, you know, with climate change, there's there's more flooding and insurance companies are losing a lot of money with, with flood claims. And what their technology allows is for, say, an insurance company to call their insured and say, you need to move your boat and your car by X time tomorrow. It's got the potential for being really helpful in basically saving lives and property damage. I love that one. I love Quantum Brilliance. What they're working on is building an iPad size, notebook size, fully functioning quantum processor that you can plug into a laptop. You know, you'll end up having this massive laptop, you know, more powerful than the biggest existing supercomputer. That will change the world. Could you imagine how that's going to help developing countries and stuff to have that kind of compute power? You know, we've just invested in in Flow and, you know, they're, they're building software to help other startups accelerate their software development process by 20x. 
they're maybe not there yet, but that will be game changing for the world. So I love these things that are going to really change the world. It's exciting. You mentioned that one of the things that really attracts you to this space is that you've always got the opportunity to learn more. In terms of your personal learning these days, how much of it is is about learning about the subject matter that the companies you're investing in are participating in and how much of it's still around, you know, what it takes to be a good investor? You're always learning about what makes a good investment. I don't know, what what does it take to be a good investor? My guess is that investing really early like we do, one of the really important things is really assessing the people. It's actually literally the most important part of your assessment process, I think, is spending time with those founders, getting to know them, forming a view on not just their intellectual firepower and their you know, but their appetite to learn because you can be as smart as could be but, you know, have emotional impediments to learning, you know, like ego or whatever and, you know, and those people that don't recognise that it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, you need a whole brilliant team, they're not going to do very well but you need to assess whether or not there's someone that can attract and maintain a really high calibre team and attract and maintain strategic partnerships and investors and things like that because they're the kind of the personal attribute slash skill set that are really critical, I think. One of the things that seems to set you apart as an early-stage investor is that you do really excellent due diligence. How do you know? We'd certainly like to think so. <laughs> but there is, there's always, look, as early as we invest – it is still much more art than science and maths. You know, I think we're pretty careful about our DD, but I think we probably do more than what other people would think would be warranted. But there, it is certainly more art than science and maths at this early stage. You know, often there's just no metrics to look at. As you say, investing in the people and the vision. But it seems like you also have this incredible funnel of potential deals, you know, given collectively the work that you and Ian have done in the space over many years. You know, I think I saw some numbers around, you know, you see sort of 1,600-odd potential companies over the course of the year you could invest in but you only end up, you know, making five or six deals a year. How do you manage that filtering process? Good question. So I think it was about two years ago we literally counted them all up and there was about 1,600 I think it's actually a lot more now. I haven't, we haven't counted them. We're getting a new investor soon. We'll have more manpower. We will track them more thoroughly going forward, just judging by all that constant inflow into our inbox. Now, I think part of that is because, you know, the bigger venture capital funds, you know, go from, say, 30 million to a billion under management. It's harder to write small checks. So there's a big movement of capital further up the the life cycle. So there's this growing seed funding gap where we invest. There's not much in the way of competition, to be honest. And and it's a really nice space to invest in because of that too, because there's a lot of co-investing and a lot of collaboration. And, you know, we don't fight each other for deals. We just kind of help each other co-invest in deals. It's, It's really, it's a much nicer place to be, I think. I love that sort of community collaboration sorry I've actually I think I've lost the it was more about that filtering of of how you get down from that number of deals so look honestly I've never been on tinder but I understand there's a lot of swipe 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 and I think there's a lot of that we just do it a heck of a lot of swipe 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 and we're currently in the process of recruiting a new um, investment associate at the moment so that we can better leverage those deals rather than just swipe swipe like the deals that hit us cold 
don't get a lot of attention. Those that, you know, come from people we know and respect and trust will obviously give a lot more attention, but I'm sure that we're missing out on deals. And there are deals that we'd like to do that we end up saying no to simply because we just don't have the capacity. So, yeah, we don't have the capacity to leverage our deal flow, but we'll, we're building that and uh, we'll do a better job of leveraging it. But, you know, we've, I'm pretty proud of the sheer volume of deals that a tiny team has done. I think we've done seven since we closed the fund on the 16th of August. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's my next question about, you know, how in terms of being productive, anything that really helps you achieve what you want to achieve, how do you actually keep it all together because then also you're running a team and doing all of the sort of profile building that you're doing for your firm. Like how do you do it all? Well, actually we don't do any profile building. We're very reactive. (laughs) We don't spend a penny on marketing, but we will be hiring a community manager in sort of February, March, someone that can write and a community manager. So we will start doing something about that. And we really want to sort of formalise the structure around leveraging some of the incredible skill set of our LPs to help our um, portfolio founders because that's been done formally, but I'm sure we can do a better job of it. For me personally, it's there's no real hack. It's just basic time management of, you know, sitting down in the morning and working out what are the most important rocks to move. And I've worked out that when I've got a really important rock to move, I just don't, I can't open my email and I can't answer for calls until I've done it and then I do it and otherwise I just get pulled too many different ways and I just can't get it done so it's a bit of a a radical way of doing it I suppose I'm not a multitasker I just you just have to go with it while you've got it and then start another task I'm not very good at juggling different things at once and as you say you're a voracious reader you're a lifelong learner any books or podcasts or that you would recommend to others that have really enhanced your understanding of things? My go-to podcast actually is called Origins. It's it's these New York guys in um, that have a podcast that's for, you know, it's basically interviewing LPs and senior GPs and it's about helping the listeners understand how venture works. I talked to Ian about it and he's like, oh, well, you'd have a really tiny audience. And I said, I know, but I would be learning. (laughs) And I do think there are lots of founders and stuff out there that might be helpful for them to help them understand how venture actually works because it's not that easily accessible. And it seems a bit monolithic from the outside too. You assume that it's this sort of structured club, but when you get on the inside of it, it's all very random. Are there any things that you would want founders to understand about the Australian venture industry? Yeah, understand that most venture investors have a big inflow, incoming kind of deal flow and that it's important to, I think, if you can't get a warm introduction to do some research and personalise your hit up, don't just randomly send, send stuff out on in bulk. Make sure you do enough research so that it's you're pretty confident that there's a reasonable chance of a fit. Don't waste your time and other people's time if, if there's just no chance of a fit. You know, where are they in the life cycle of their fund, whether they'll be able to invest or not? Don't sign a term sheet without doing a due diligence. You know, these relationships, investor, early stage startup relationships can last longer than most marriages. So just be very careful about who you get into bed with because they can have a big impact. They'll do their due diligence on you. It's incumbent on you to do your due diligence on them. And I think other thing that I think is really important and you cannot duck it 
get up that learning curve on terms and the potential ramifications for those terms. So I strongly suggest reading The Secrets of Sand Hill Road by Scott Cooper, the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, because that's a much more quickly digestible read. It's it's very well written. It's just quick and easy to read. And then read uh, Brad Feld's Venture Deals, which is, you know, Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson's Venture Deals, which is kind of the, the Bible for venture capital terms. And I suggest reading in that order because I think Venture Deals was much more digestible after you've read the first one. <laughs> but you really need to think through the terms and how they, the potential impact and ramifications for you and your business going forward and don't rely on lawyers to do that. They won't be able to think through those ramifications for you. They don't know your business like you do. They don't know your personal circumstances like you do. And it's really, really important. Uh, it's an important investment of time for the future because there's going to be multiple rounds, presumably, and it will serve you in good stead. We were talking before we started recording that um, there were some questions that, that I'd sent through in advance that you really had to think about. Are there any that we haven't covered that there's insights you'd like to share? No, I think that was one of the most important ones. I suppose the other one is that early stage founders and people, you know, think they're avoiding the valuation question by taking C notes and safes and, you know, safes had that had the disadvantage that they're developed for a US environment. And I think it's a bit like square pegs and round holes using them here because, you know, none of the investors can access the you know the tax concessions with a safe or even a c note and i think it's even though in theory c notes and safes of in theory avoid the valuation question now i think in practice they don't avoid it at all because people then take the cap as as the valuation and then that risks that then risks what i call my sort of valuation coffin scenario where you in you've raised it too high a valuation and it's by the time you get to having the revenue on which you can base solid metrics and calculations to come up with a evaluation based on metrics rather than just guesswork, I suppose, it means that you've got an awful lot more growth to get there in a much more compressed period of time, which then creates a real risk for you as a founder, I think, in maybe not being able to raise again before you run out. Last question, what are you really enthusiastic, excited, optimistic about? That's a really good question. I look, I just love the whole startup sector. I'm excited about technology that combats climate change. Technology that makes the world better is just really exciting. We're lucky to live in this age. <laughs> well, it's just fabulous to spend some time with you. I really appreciate you sharing your story and all that you've contributed to sort of shaping the startup sector as it is today in Australia. It's, it's fantastic. So thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Catherine. It was a privilege. Thank you. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, 
and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.